picture of the crowds going, we won Mike. I don't know. I, I think uh, I, I'm going to just let these two guys talk. I'm not going to talk tonight because uh, they're good buddies. They're reef keeping legends. And I, I should just sit back and listen to them because I'll, I'll take in a lot more information in terms of me trying to like interview them. But hey, welcome back, folks, to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Perkelhammer. And tonight I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming, welcoming two icons in the hobby both dr sanjay yoshi as well as mike paletta um welcome both of these guys back to the show but i have them on together which is a very big treat for me what's up guys hey keith how are you and to the rest of the world watching <laughs> <laughs> hello folks everybody. um if if you have any problems hearing everybody Please let me know in the chat. I think we're good, but uh, given that this is, uh, I have two guests on tonight, it's a little bit of a curveball. Don't do this uh, too often, so if we have any uh, audio issues, let me know. So, all right, there's not a lot of folks out there that don't know you two guys, but um, let me uh, just briefly explain to the folks out there who uh, we're talking to tonight. Sanjay has written many articles about reef keeping. He has been a speaker at several national marine aquarium society meetings at local clubs. In real life, Sanjay is a professor of industrial and manufacturing engineering at Penn State University. Mike, too, has written a lot of articles for many publications. He has also published two books, The New Marine Aquarium and Ultimate Marine Aquariums. And Mike has also been a speaker at many reef keeping conferences in the U.S. and around the world, and Mike was just named the 2022 Masna Award recipient. That's a very big deal. Congrats, Mike. Hey, that's how it works, huh? This is going to be an excellent show. All right, so before we start digging in with both Sanjay and Mike, I want to thank the sponsors for the show, both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. I really appreciate these companies supporting the live stream, and I appreciate you folks tuning in and watching. Please spread the word. Hit that like button. I see we've got um, a bunch of people watching, not as many likes, so let's get those likes up. And as per usual, comments and questions in the chat are very much encouraged. I will do my best to monitor that uh, stuff in the chat. So anyway, um, guys, the uh, the summer is kind of fast um, approaching to an end here. How, how has it been going for both of you? Well, it's been a pretty busy summer for me. Not work-wise, but I've been traveling all over the world, been traveling all over the country, and enjoying the most of the time that I usually get in the summer. So it was, it was, it's been great. Went on a cruise from Venice to Athens, Greece. That was awesome. Spent two weeks with my granddaughter. That wow. was awesome. So I had heard at one point, uh, Sanjay, that you spent six weeks away from your tank, right? This this summer, yes. I've spent actually more than six weeks away. That now, how do you uh, how do you manage that in terms of having somebody uh, babysit the tank? You know what? Um, I, I'm assuming you've got most of my most of the stuff is automated, right? So I've been using an Apex. I use you know good equipment that can be automated and reliable enough. 
And I can easily leave my tank for extended periods of time, but I still have one of my neighbors just come in every few days to make sure that nothing is really gone haywire. Right? I mean, I have a little camera, I can view my tank from wherever I am and at least get a good sense of that things are okay. So over the years, I've fine-tuned that system, you know, keep finding the weakest link in there and keep strengthening the weakest link. And uh, so far, keep my fingers crossed, it's been working pretty well. Yeah, I was away recently for a few days on vacation in, in Maine, and it was some very hot and humid days here in Vermont. And, and just typically when it's hot and humid here, I have these uh, water sensors you know, leak sensors that uh, let me know yeah, they, trip. they trip, man. It just freaked me <laughs> out because they tripped. And, and even yeah. though I have somebody coming in to, to look at the tank and feed the fish and all that stuff, it's like, all right. I'm, it was actually on the last day of my vacation, so they weren't coming in that day. I was going to be home. And I was like, all right, you know what? I'm going to have to trust my instinct on this, that there's not a whole bunch of water on the uh, on the floor of the, uh, in the fish tank room. But I also have a live okay. webcam. Not not a – I got a Nest Cam in the uh, sump, sump room. So – yeah, I, I use the nest cam yeah. too. I should put one. I should put one in the bathroom I, um, too. I'm going to get at least two more nest cams because I have a live webcam on one tank on YouTube. My other tank, I have nothing on it, the display tank. And then in my sump room, I've got like three frag tanks. And I think I want to get um, at least a couple of more nest cams because I don't even keep them on. I have them like hooked into um, you know my controller, so when I need to look at them, I turn them on. Because because oh okay, I it seems like the nest cams. Time. It seems like the nest cams run a little hot. Maybe I have like a, some of the uh, one of the older ones, but um, mine's been running for five years. And I haven't had any oh, yeah? issues. Oh, with that's it. good to know. Yeah. The only thing you can't do with my with this nest cam, you can't zoom in. Right. So you can't do that. I mean, if I had to buy another camera, I might get one with a pan tilt zoom functionality. I do like. Uh, let's see closer. And I do like look. the fact. Is that the one we got from Ecotech? Yeah, I have to check that out. Oh, we're saying that Mike. Yeah, it sticks to the front glass. On the soft coral tank, it's fine. I mean, I don't want it on the big tank, but when I'm away, I want to make sure the sunroom tank's okay. Let me see now. We're uh, apparently we're having some audio issues. Can can folks? Um, Mike's mute. All right, Mike's. Hello, hello. Can, can people hear, hear Mike now? Can't hear Mike. Hmm. Uh, let's see. Let me uh, let me look at this here. Let's see. How's that? Any better? All good now. Okay. Can you hear Sanjay? Can everybody hear Sanjay? Mike is good. Sanjay, Sanjay is good now. Everybody's good. All right. Solve that problem. Can hear everyone now. All right, Mike. So you were muted there, but. I didn't really ask you much, much in terms of uh, what's been going on with you. So now that we could hear you, what, uh, what's happening with you this summer? Uh, pretty much the same thing. Been traveling, uh, being retired. I have more free time, but I uh, had some family things I had to take care of that took up a lot more time than I wanted. 
but everything's good. I mean, uh, the tank is finally stabilized. As we told you, Sanjay and I have both been battling uh, tissue necrosis issues for probably most of the year. And after looking at everything and sending in multiple uh, uh, biome tests and everything else to check on the bacteria, I finally found out that it was a high dose of Vibrio and Arcobacter in the tank. And so I went to, uh, when I was having issues with individual colonies starting to show tissue necrosis, I treated them with the high dose Cipro and amazingly it stopped it on all of them. So then over the past two weeks, I did a Cipro treatment uh, that I found out from uh, Randy and uh, Devin at ARC. I did what they had done where I dosed uh, one 500 milligram tablet per 100 gallons. And I did that every other day for the past two, well, previous two weeks. It's now been a week since I did. And since then, it has finally stopped. So I'm waiting another week, and then I'm going to send in another biological sample to see if I have indeed wiped out the Vibrio. Because since I stopped do, using the Cipro, I've also been adding a bunch of different bacteria to try and boost the good bacteria back up. I mean, the interesting thing, though, uh, Without everything good, always something bad happens. Mm. Uh, for whatever reason, after the two weeks of dosing Cipro, my redox went from around 365 down to 215. And I have no idea why or what it killed off, but it's now come back up to 325 after a week. But I also had something that I hadn't had in years where I had a dinoflagellate outbreak. And my nitrates and phosphates are both relatively high. So now I've been managing that for the past couple of days. I just did a uh, three-night, three-day blackout on the tank, and I'm treating with DinoX. And today is the first day the lights are back on, and there's no visible uh, dinoflagellate. So hopefully that worked. But anything you do, as we talked about, you always cause something else to happen. I mean, it's always something, as we say. Did uh, did you try using UV, uh, Mike, on those dinos, or do you know exactly what you have? I, I did use the UV. These were not the uh, the ones that go out at night. These ones pretty much stayed home on the on the on the substrate because I had use, I have a 120 watt UV sterilizer on the tank and I just changed the bulbs and it had no effect on them whatsoever. So I had to go to a blackout in uh, Dino X and right now it seems to be working, but we'll see in a couple of days. Yeah, you know, um, a number of years ago I didn't. Throw them under a microscope and take. Yeah, that's what I. Because it'd be nice to see what is it that's different in these dinos that are, they are not they're not being affected by the UV. Because yeah. in my past experience, it's always been the UV has always worked. Yeah, this is uh, the first time it didn't so work for it might me. Be I was very species. disappointed in. But I know there's a couple strains that are aren't free swimming, so I have no idea. I'm assuming these are. I just got a microscope actually for my birthday, so I have to hook it up and figure out how to use it, which, you know, I love reading directions and stuff like that. <laughs> now, do you, um, do you find it interesting, um, Mike, that you've got this outbreak on a mature reef tank? I mean, you did say that, you know, you, you did one thing and it just kind of like led to another thing, but did that surprise you that it happened to a mature reef tank in terms of getting dinos? At, at this point, nothing surprises me because even if I add nothing to the tank, there's always something in the tank that pops up and causes issues when everything isn't just right. I mean, I, I've come to the conclusion that uh, keeping a 500 gallon tank connected to two other tanks is like keeping plates on a stick. There's always one about to fall off and you always gotta be balancing one thing versus the other. Um, so 
I think Mike, um, somebody might have, we might have missed this in terms of the audio, but um, Flavio <laughs> Amorum, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is asking, is it possible to repeat about the tissue necrosis treatment? Oh, sure. Uh, after, after battling it for much of the past year, year and a half probably, off and on, Sanjay said the same thing. It's not widespread rapid tissue necrosis like it used to be where you had a high temperature and you wiped out a lot of colonies. Everything would be fine for a week or two, and then all of a sudden you'd see it creeping up the base of one coral. And everything would be fine for another week, and you'd see it creeping up another coral. Sanjay's seen the same thing where sometimes the corals would survive, sometimes they'd die. So I, I finally got tired of, of battling this. So I had three corals come down with it at the same time, and I treated them with a very high dose Cipro, uh, half of a 500 milligram tablet in two gallons of tank water uh, for four hours. And I took them out of it and I put them back in the tank. And miraculously, for the first time, the tissue necrosis stopped. I mean, mm. there was no more, even though it was half on the branches. And by the next day, the polyps had come out on those. Now, this is just my experience, and this is anecdotal, so I don't want everyone going home and do, doing this. But if you're having these kind of issues, it might be something to look at. So then, uh, miraculously, I was up at ARC and was talking to Randy and uh, Devin about it. And they told me what their treatment is whenever they start to see this kind of stuff. And they came to the recommendation of one 500 milligram capsule of Cipro per 100 gallons of tank water. So my whole system is 600 gallons. So I was treating with six tabs of Cipro every other day. And they recommended for 10 days. I went a little longer, went for 14 days because I wanted to make sure it was truly done. And once it was over, I've, I've not had any issues with uh, tissue necrosis. And on three of the corals where I was starting to get bleaching, the bleaching stopped. And part of the reason that I, I went with Cipro also was I had sent in a biological analysis to uh, Aquabiome, I think is the company. Aquabiomics. Sanjay. Equibiomics, and I, it came back with a uh, Arcobacter and Vibrio were both very high, and fortunately both of those are very susceptible to Cipro, because I had tried a couple other uh, antibiotics in the past. I tried Chemiclean with erythromycin, and I tried Doxycycline, and neither of those really touched it, but the Cipro seems to have worked so far. Um, Rob Upstate, New York, thank you so much, man, for that super chat. Hi, Keith, Mike, and Sanjay. Look forward to this chat all week. So, so have I. Um, so, Mike, I think the last time you were on, we, we talked about um, a theory that you had in terms of your RTN and STN and, and UV light within um, the lack of UV light in LEDs. And, and um, so you had Tulio from ReefBright over at your house with his uh, photo spectrometer, and he found that there was very little UV being emitted by the LEDs over your tank. So your, um, your, your, your basic theory was that the um, the lack of UV light in the tanks lit by LEDs is potentially contributing to more pathogens that can cause RTN and STN. So, um, are you, you were skeptical about the you know the whole um, UV thing and LEDs? Yeah, what, is that, have you moved on I'm, from I'm, that? I'm, it, yeah, I'm more skeptical. I, I ran the uh, halides and I still got the tissue necrosis. Uh, I mean, in looking at how much UV you're getting out of the halides, you're getting more, but it, it hasn't been shown to be bactericidal. As a result, it doesn't really have much of an effect if uh, tissue necrosis is a result of bacterial infections, which in my experience is, is primarily what it is, because you probably stress the corals by one thing or another, 
And then once you stress them, that seems to be when the bacteria take hold. The other thing that I have been playing with, though, is keeping the pH higher. And that also seems to help because there was actually a paper that came out probably six or seven months ago that showed that high CO2 levels and low pH lead to a microbiome around the corals that tends to exacerbate uh, tissue necrosis and Vibrio and some other pathogenic bacteria. So I've been playing with that as well by uh, having by having Kalkwasser drip into the tank at night as well. I started that right after I did the Cipro. So that seems to be helping as well because now my pH doesn't drop below 8.0, 8.05 at night. And now it goes up to 8.3, 8.4 during the day. So I, I ran the uh, halides for about six months and I never saw any benefit or reduction in tissue necrosis. But now running the Cipro and now dripping in the Kalkwasser at night seems to be making a difference. So you pulled the halides? The halides are still on just because I run them for three hours and I, I get a six to 700 par and I'm getting faster growth. But the question is, do I really want faster growth? Because I have so many corals in the tank to just start growing into each other. So I'm, I'm thinking about slowing them down to just an hour or two now. Plus the cost of electricity went up 23% on June 1st. So that's another reason why I may uh, reduce their usage. Sanjay, what, what about uh, you in terms of the um, RT and STN episodes in your tank? What, what's an update on, on that? Have you um, had any? Yeah, see, I always take a very different approach, right? I don't jump on treatments from treatment to treatment <laughs> to treatment because then you never know what really worked, right? So my strategy always is I kind of want to do things one at a time, right? So the first strategy always is do nothing. <laughs> Maybe it'll ride itself out of there, right? That hasn't worked. That hasn't worked. Cross that off the list. Okay. Right. So then you move on to the next one. And I did the same thing as Mike did. I did send off my water to Aquabiomics. Um, to see if they found anything interesting. And the prevailing theory was that Acrobacter causes this. And I followed their instructions on using Cipro. I just followed whatever they had recommended and it didn't stop it. Okay. Um, and then since I've been gone so much this year, I said, you know what, I'm just gonna keep letting it ride and see what happens. What letting happens, it ride in terms of doing nothing. Doing nothing. Sanjay's always been a and, big fan of survival of the fittest. So, we will go. <laughs> <laughs> so unfortunately, the problem is still ongoing. Um, so now that I'm back, I hate working on the tank when I'm going to be home for a week and then yeah. I'm gone for another two weeks. I hate messing with too many things. So now that I'm back, I might start looking into some of these treatments and see if there is any, I guess, reasonable merit to them to make them work. Um, so we'll see. Um, it's not like RTNs that just did the calls out right away, but the weirdest thing is that once a coral seems to get it, it will keep getting it. It stops once in a while, and then the coral is doing fine, it keeps growing, and then bam, again, it'll get it. And the way it, it, it just hit it in the middle of the corner sometimes. There's no, so there's definitely something systematic going on. Okay. 
Well, what's um, interesting in my tanks is that it occurs more in the big tank than it does in the frag tank or in the LPS tank. In the LPS tank, I've had no issues with the Euphilias or the Goniopores or any of the other LPS. And in the frag tank, I've had minimal RTN, but it seems to occur in the big tank. So I don't think it's a, a free swimming bacteria per se to the degree that it used that it might be because it's located and all those tanks are interconnected. So it doesn't make any sense to me why it's in the big tank and not in the other two because it's the exact same water. Yeah, it's... It, it, that's what drives you nuts is there, there's no rhyme or reason to say, okay, this should be in all of them or it should be in none of them, but it's in one of three. It, uh, it can drive you batty all of a sudden. It just kind of seems very random and out of the blue. You know, a lot of times you're on... Yeah, especially given the fact that, you know, for, what, 30 years now, I've been keeping corals, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, problems come and go. This one seems so to have Yeah, this one has been throughout the year. So, I mean, it's been at least since yeah. Christmas I've been battling this. Sanjay, do you think it, um, old tank syndrome potentially could be um, something that is, is causing this? I mean, your tank has been up for a very long time. I know you've had some resets along the way, but... Um, no, there's no major resets. No major resets. The only reset was pulling out the acros and treating them for flatworms and putting them back in. So it's still running on the same rock. It's still running on the same sand. Do you, do you think else. that could potentially? Right. So again, my you know the way I think is slightly different from what most people might think. I go, okay, what's a, what's old tanks? Yeah, in? I don't. You know, we kind of just say call it old tanks. What is it? Right? Is my water gone bad? you know, with some trace elements disappearing, whatever. So now we have ways of at least trying to address that question, right? You can run ICP tests and so on, see if the trace elements are, again, it's a matter of trusting the ICPs, which I'm not 100% sure how much you trust them, but at least it gives you some sense, right? That maybe there's, so that's one, one aspect of what I would call an old tank syndrome, right? Maybe your nitrates, phosphate levels are getting creeping up high because it's an older mm -hmm. tank. But those are manageable, right? You can manage nitrates. You've had, you manage. had incredibly high nitrate and phosphate levels, and your corals were literally right. growing out of the tank. So that's probably right. not it. No, actually, I find when I lower my nitrates and phosphate, the corals don't do yeah. as well. Yeah. So what exactly is old tank syndrome? So the third part of that equation might be the bacteria, right? Yeah. So potentially now with some of these techniques, there is an opportunity to look at these bacteria and see if there is any merit to this idea that maybe over long periods of time, there's a shift in the bacterial composition and so on. But then I don't know what it was when we first started my tank. So there is no baseline yeah. to base it on because these techniques didn't exist. But maybe now we have a way of establishing a baseline and then tracking it over time to see, hey, you know, what's happening. Sanjay, do you um do you dose bacteria? I can't recall if you dose bacteria. I don't usually dose bacteria at all. I, I do. No. I dose on a regular basis. I'm not convinced that the people selling me bacteria have any clue on what bacteria is good bacteria, okay, or bad bacteria, and you know, any of those things. So I don't really dose it. And now, again, if somebody wants to spend the money, we could do some really cool experiments. Yeah. I could take my tank. I could dose these bacteria that they're 
centimeter dose in there, right? We could send off a sample of the bacteria to get tested and see what exactly is in there, right? right? And put it in the tank and see if it made any difference in the tank or not. Yeah, but right. no one's going to pay us so, to do that because <laughs> that would hurt their business. Yeah, I mean, it's expensive to do those tests. 90 bucks a pop to do the test is not cheap. But what my point is that there are now systematic ways in which a lot of these questions can be answered, right? And surely, you know, a lot of people who sell these products won't be excited about doing those things, right? Uh, but if there is any independent interest, these things can be done. Um, Bill Saltwater Haven is uh, asking Mike and Sanjay, how is your potassium? Low potassium can cause um, RTN. You guys... Uh, uh, my my potassium is around 450, oh. I believe. Yeah, mine runs about 375 to 400 on the ICP test. I, I had issues when it got over 470. Then I was starting to get, I know that was stressing the corals as well. Um, I was high running it between 430 and 450 now, and that doesn't seem to be the issue with it. I, I actually just ran three ICP tests from three different manufacturers at the same time. And it was interesting. On the big major elements, they were all pretty close but none of them showed I had any trace elements in the tank whatsoever. And I've been dosing trace elements now for the past six weeks, six months on a regular basis. All of them were zero. So that <laughs> gotta dose, gotta dose more. more skeptical of them. <laughs> I, I was dosing from what the scale says, pretty much the maximum. The only thing I said I was high on was iodine. Um, so getting back to the uh, aquabiomics and, and um, the, uh, the bacteria testing. So I had um, Dr. Eli Meyer, who um, runs aquabiomics on the live stream last week, and I had him on before uh, about a year ago. And unfortunately, we, uh, our conversation got cut off near the end last week because um, Eli's laptop died on him. But um, I'm going to have him back on in, in November. I, I'm, I'm actually doing a little experiment myself. Which is interesting. I uh, I did a whole big reboot of my 187 gallon tank, and I I yanked the uh, Haitian live rock I had in that tank, and I swapped in the um, Carib Sea Life dry rock, which I had been cooking in a Rubbermaid tub for six months, and I had been dosing bacteria daily, um, the Microbacter uh, Brightwell's Microbacter uh, Seven bacteria daily to try to get the rock to be alive. You know, when I put it into right. the tank. And then uh, what I did was when I pulled the Haitian live rock out, I put it in a, a brand new cryptic sump. So my goal was to maintain the bacteria population in the system with this big swap out of the uh, live rock and display for the, uh, for the dry rock. And, and so I, I'm, I'm doing three different points in time in terms of the bacteria testing. I'm doing a pre-test, which is before I did the major uh, swap out. I tested the Rubbermaid tub after six months with the uh, dry rock in it. And then uh, I also did a post-test two weeks after I did the big swap out. And, and, it, and it seems like uh, I'm still waiting for the, uh, the post-test um, results. But it, it seems like the, uh, the rock cooking for six months and dosing the bacteria certainly helped bring life to the dry rock because there were certainly a variety of bacteria present. But I, I do agree, Sanjay. I think it would be interesting to kind of see in a mature system in terms of a, um, a kind of a before and after in terms of dosing bacteria and observing the coral health, did the bacteria dosing help? Because we, we, 
Sorry. Well, I was going to say Sanjay and I both had a similar experience a few years ago where we both started tanks at about the same time with dry rock and we didn't aggressively dose them with bacteria. And we both had issues with the corals, the SPS corals never thriving yeah. in the tanks. They would just sit there for a while, be stable, and then they would just fade out. And we talked to some other people and they all said the same thing in order to get dead rock to work or dry rock to work. You have to either add a lot of uh, bacteria or you have to add some live rock to inoculate it and get it going. Because otherwise, without the microfauna and without the uh, bacterial cultures, the corals never seem to really take off. And that, I've talked to a number of people now, and they've all had similar experiences. Yeah, I, um, I had a pretty bad experience myself, too. But I, I didn't dose any bacteria when I, when I started. We didn't either. Yeah. That was the problem. Yeah. So that's, that's why I wanted to. Yeah, we didn't know. That's, that's why I wanted to make it hopefully different with this, uh, this going on. So far, so good. I'm getting some cyano in the display tank. But I've, you know, everything in terms of the frag tanks that are plumbed into that display tank are looking great. Um, so, Mike, you mentioned trace elements. And um, here's a question for both of you guys. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'd be interested to know what you think about this. How important is it to add trace elements to a reef tank on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being not so important and 10 being very important? I think adding trace elements is probably a 7 or 8 if you have everything else really good. If everything else isn't really good and balanced, it's going to be a one. It's not going to matter. You have to have, uh, they're sort of like the uh, key factor to the cherry on top of the sundae once you have the sundae built with the ice cream and the whipped cream. If you don't have that sundae built, that cherry isn't going to matter in, in my experience. I mean, you could add all the trace elements you want, but if your nutrient levels aren't good, your light isn't good, your flow isn't good, and you know, your calcium, alkalinity, and magnesium aren't good, it's not going to make any difference. But when you have everything good, they can make a difference. They can bring out more colors. They can add more health. Like certain trace elements, even more so. Like manganese, I have found, is vital for growing goniopores. I, I, I run experiments all the time, as you know, because I'm always tinkering. And so I have these uh, goniopores in my LPS tank that were just literally growing out of the tank. And I wanted to see... Okay, is it from feeding or is it from manganese or it's just the tank in general? So I, I kept feeding them and I stopped the manganese and they did well, but they didn't grow quite to the same level. Then I stopped feeding and just added the manganese and it was basically the same thing. But when I added the manganese and was feeding, that's when they really took off. So it, it's it, it, like I said, it's when you have everything really good, they can add to it. But if everything isn't perfect, I don't think they're going to add significantly to a, a major benefit to the tank. So, Andrzej? Yeah, I mean, I, if you ask me the question slightly differently, I can give you a better answer. <laughs> How would you like me to ask you the question? He doesn't add trace elements. <laughs> well, I use, I well, then use. you should say one. <laughs> but do I? Well, no, but, you know, do I believe that trace elements get depleted in systems? My answer would be yes. Okay, if you're, especially if you're not doing right. water changes, they'll definitely, probably, you know, they'll definitely get depleted to some extent, right? What I don't know is what levels is it start to become an issue with the corals, right? So it's a safe bet to say, okay, I'll just make it what natural seawater is or get close enough to it. 
and that should be okay, right? Um, so yeah, I can definitely see that certain tanks could get depleted. I've tried lots of different trace elements over the years, and when my tank was doing really good, it made no difference to my tank. Okay. So obviously, you know, there are times when some element might get out of whack. You know, they get consumed. I, I can dump a lot of iron in my tank and it never shows up on the ICP. Mm -hmm. Right? So there's, it's either getting used or it's getting oxidized or whatever. And it's becoming useless and not doing anything. Uh, similar things happen with manganese. It tends to disappear rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're doing water changes, there's a good likelihood that you're adding them all in. You know, a lot of people like this whole idea. I'm going to use an ICP. I'm going to measure it, and then whatever is missing, I'll I'll replenish that. Is that a good method to think about? Kind of, as long as you trust mm -hmm. your ICP. Yeah, well, that's why I said I ran three simultaneous ICPs. None of them showed any trace elements despite six months of dosing. So my I yeah, but is there, them is, you know, eh. is there a difference between 0 0.004 parts per billion and 0 0.008 parts yeah, per billion? No. <laughs> I don't know the answers to those questions, right? So it's very hard to say, give a definitive answer. But I do know people whose tanks have improved and started adding trace elements because it's likelihood that their tanks were didn't have certain elements in there. Right? But we don't know which ones make a difference. Right? We know manganese and iron probably do. We know right? zinc and barium probably have some effect. Is, is nickel going to make a yeah. difference? I don't know. Is rubidium going right? to make a difference? Rubidium going to make a yeah. difference? That, I, I mean, until can someone runs individual corals and adds trace elements to one tank and not to the other, and you can see a difference, I mean, but what you would have to do is run a dozen different corals and say, okay, this one made this one redder compared to this other tank. Nobody's going to run those on each individual trace element. It's just too prohibitive to do that because yeah, there's no yeah, trace elements. Too much. And also, some of them interact with each other. Yeah. So is this one only beneficial if you're also adding that one, or do these two compete? So it, it's always going to be a, a kind of gray area, and you're, you're putting your faith on, okay, I saw this benefit. It gets back to where it's much more anecdotal than it is scientific. I mean, a lot of people run algae filters, right? So you're growing chero, you're growing uh, algae on the screen, whatever, right? We know that plants to grow well need a whole bunch of different trace elements. And a lot of people find after running these algae filters for a while that their algae doesn't grow as well. Right? It's probably depleted some trace element that now has become limiting to growth. Right? So at that point, yeah, people are now, you have to add some of these trace elements to get the algae to grow. Right. And is, is that. Right? So my argument is what are you trying to do? Are you trying to grow coal? Are you trying to <laughs> yeah, grow or is that missing trace element to the algae? If you're going to grow algae, I guarantee you, you're going to need those trace elements. Yeah, I, I have bad luck uh, keeping Cato alive. Yeah, uh, partly. It's, I'm sure it's, it's got to do with trace elements. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think in some ways your algae might be competing with your corals. Right? They're all 
using the same things. Right. You know, and so that's kind of like the rub, right? In terms of using macroalgae, I, I, I used to use, um, GFO, but I didn't, I didn't like using GFO, you know, after a while because, um, you know, not only does GFO bind phosphates, but it's going to also bind other valuable trace elements. So that, that could potentially. Oh, so it binds arsenic. That's, is that a good a trace bad element to have? <laughs> it takes the good <laughs> with the bad, I guess. I don't know. The bad with the yeah. good. Yes. There's always going to be some of that, right? Uh, it might bind other things. You know, I'm not a chemist, so I really can't say a whole lot that, about it. But definitely it's going to bind a few things. So, yeah, if, if it's binding things that are starting to affect your coral growth, you might have an issue with it. Well, the, one of the other questions I have about ICP testing is I see, I've seen a lot of my friends' ICP tests, and basically all of us show high lithium and high aluminum levels. And none of us can figure out where those are coming from other than those are an artifact of the ICP test. No, I think they're coming in from the chemicals that we use to mix the salt. Okay. Well, we're all using different salts. But chemicals are the same. Underlying chemicals are all pretty much the same. Right? And I'm willing to bet if you trace the supply chain, the sources might be very, might be the yeah, same. Yeah, I'm betting too. on a lot of them. They're the same source for, you know, you know. Uh, so it, it very well could be. I mean, this Trident showed that a long time ago, that the American tanks were always high in lithium compared to the European yeah. tanks. Does yeah. um. <clears throat> Does the uh, brand of ICP test, the type of ICP test the company you're using, matter? Well, there's two of them, right? There's the ICP OES and there's the ICP MS. The ICP MS is a lot more sensitive uh, compared to the ICP OES. And that's a lot of the companies are using ICP OES, but now there's a few that are trying to use the ICP MS which has a much higher sensitivity. So maybe that'll help with some of the trace elements a little bit better. Uh, make, maybe they'll be more detectable. What's frustrating to me is... Um... But I don't think the answer is there. We've been keeping reefs for 20, 30 years, and we never bothered about this stuff. And we well, have that's the whole success. thing. So explain that, that to me. That's right? the whole so this thing. this is what I said. Explain that to me. Why did we have so much success in the past Right, without knowing some of these things, but now we can't seem to have any good success. A lot of people. Here's, in spite here, of here's an example of things. in terms of having too much information these days and making bad decisions based on that information. So um, when I years ago, when I had you know some big thriving reef tanks with a lot of SPS growing out of the water, practically. I never measured for phosphate. I never measured for magnesium. I measured like, you know, alkalinity. I looked at the nitrate, the salinity, the temperature. So now I measure phosphate every week <clears throat> with a um, Milwaukee test kit. And, you know, it's frustrating, right? Because phosphate is a very, very tough element to measure with a hobby grade test kit. So I was uh, looking at the information in terms of what I was getting back for phosphate test kit results. And I was getting, you know, week after week after week, it was zero, 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 zero. I was like, all right, I guess I better start dosing some phosphate. And uh, I ended up dosing uh, a little bit too much phosphate. And I had a couple of corals overnight, I believe due to the high phosphates that I was dosing brown out on me. So I think mm -hmm. that's an example of just having all this information at your fingertips, 
And I'm, I'm sort of like you, Sanjay. I think I try not to overreact based on the information that I see out there that I have available to myself. I really like to kind of sit back and look for big, broad trends. But I, I think that's kind of an example of, um, you know, acting on a piece of information that we have, uh, you know, more at our fingertips today than we've had in the past. And it's the same thing with ICP I, I, tests. But I, I actually the think is we don't know the correlations. I was going to say, actually, right. I, I think it's it's more than just having a high phosphate level. Sanjay was running phosphate levels off the chart, and his corals were the most colorful corals you've ever seen. So it's not just a... And there's no algae in the tank. No, there, you couldn't find a speck of algae in the tank. His nitrates were at right. 90, and I think his phosphates were at like 0.2 or 0.3. And his corals were literally growing out of the tank. And when he would flick on all the blue lights, it would literally be blindingly colorful. I mean, they were the most spectacular corals you've ever seen. So it wasn't just a function of having high phosphate. There's there's way too much than just one factor. It, it, it's not just I had high phosphate. There's more to it that they brought out because of X, Y, and Z, not just X. But that's the problem. We now have so much information. We don't know if it's X, Y, or Z because we now have a b c d and e to go with those so we now have seven things to look at not just one yeah i mean i was, I was just making an example in terms of like taking the information and acting on it where um you know i think phosphate test kits are pretty fairly inaccurate these days and, and I don't, you know i think um well the, well the inaccuracy all depends on what you right. want from it right if if it's point two and it's really point two five. Deal. Is that such a big deal? If it's point two and it's showing you point eight, then yeah, that's a big deal, right? So I don't think that that inaccurate where a point two reading is going to show up as a point eight reading, right? It could be point three. It could be point one in that range. You know, so if you think about these things in terms of ranges, right? Every measurement device is going to have some uncertainty in the measurement. Well, I use right? more, and the less uncertainty you want, the more you're going to pay for that test. Right. I use them more as a trend rather yeah. than a specific number, because as we've all learned the hard way, if you're chasing a number, you're basically going to drive yourself nuts, and you're probably going to end up killing more corals than you're going to save. So you don't necessarily want to chase a number. You want you want to look at a trend and figure out what's going on. Okay, my phosphate's point two. Now it's point three. Now it's point four. What's going on? Obviously, something right. not good. And is that trend then going to produce a deleterious effect in the tank? And you don't then don't want to stop it and go from 0.2 to zero either, because that's going to cause just as much problem. I like Bert yeah. you Confucius say, the more we learn, the more we realize we don't know. That's that's pretty right. much the whole the hallmark of this hobby. <laughs> um, all right. So somebody asked this question, and it was. That's why you'll never find a PhD researcher who's deep into the material will never tell you that they know everything. They'll never give you a definitive answer. Well, they're, they're very, they're very that's smart. A possibility. <laughs> they're smart enough to know there is no definitive answer. <laughs> um, so Rob Upstate New York is asking this question, Mike, what salt are you using? And then um, I got a follow-up question there for you, Mike. I'm still using Instant Ocean. I've been using it for 40 years. And main reason is because it's been consistent. I've not had... Things fluctuate. I mean, I test it before I add it just to make sure, but it always is pretty much within, you know, 5% of where it's always been. Sanjay? 
I've been using instant ocean. All right, then I, I kind of know what the answer but to this next question is. On a scale of one to ten, how important is the brand of salt you use? I think it's a ten, but I think the the, the biggest fa factor is it stays consistent. Because I remember right. in the past having people call me that were switching around with salts, and they would call and say, all my snails died. But they wouldn't tell me what was going on. And I'd sit on the phone with them for an hour trying to figure out what's going on. And finally, I'd say, what salt did you use? And I'd say, oh, brand X. And I'd go, did you look at the sodium levels on it? Because this salt was known for being very inconsistent in its sodium levels. And if they bounced them off the walls, all the snails would die. So after three or four times with this, people would call me and say, you switched to this salt, didn't you? And they go, yeah. And I'm going, there's what happened. So it, it's a 10, but in, in terms of being consistent, you don't want to be bumping around. Okay, I got this salt for $40 a bucket. But I got this one for 20, so I'm going to change to it. Now I got this one for 80 because it's a higher brand of salt. You keep moving things around, you're going to have more problems than, than it's worth. Do you agree, Sanjay? I mean, there, there is a likelihood of you getting a bad batch of salt, right? And it's, it's likely that you, it could happen with any salt company if their quality control is not good, right? I don't worry too much about, oh, you know, the alkalinity is low when you mix it because I know I can adjust it. Right? I know I can adjust the calcium. Mm -hmm. you know? um, so, you know, those kind of things, little things here and there don't so, Are you testing much. the newly mixed salt water or are you just testing your tank and adjusting accordingly? I just test my tank and adjust accordingly. I, t I test yeah. the mixed up salt just because I've heard too many horror stories. Uh, from people that I did this and this happened. Even though I trust Instant Ocean, I'm always a Ronald Reagan fan. Trust but verify. <laughs> yeah, that was going to be my, my my next question in terms of. I mean, I at the most I'm doing 10% water change in a 500 gallon tank. That's 50 gallons, right? Even if things are off, how much are they going to have an impact on a 500 gallon tank? Right. If I was going to do a 50 gallon water change on a 55 gallon tank, I'd be a lot more careful. And measure the salt before I dumped it in because that's like a hundred percent water change. I only do it now after hearing all the horror stories from the one salt that was out there that people wiped out their whole tank. So I've become more paranoid because it, it takes what five minutes to do a test. So I run the tests just to make sure. I mean, I'm, I'm much more adamant at changing my RODI uh, filters and my carbon on my on my processed water than I am worried about the salt. To be honest with you. Because I've also heard numerous horror stories from your municipal authority suddenly starts adding chemical X into the water, and all of a sudden you you don't know it, and it wipes out a tank. So I I'm paranoid about everything. So I actually have uh, my water authority. If they change anything, I have mandated that they call me because I've explained to them that if they do not, there will be a major lawsuit for loss of coral life. So they're they've actually been pretty good about it. What what are you um, testing, Mike, in terms of the newly uh, mixed salt water? What are you testing for? I'm testing calcium. I'm testing alkalinity. I'm testing salinity, and I'm testing magnesium, and that—that's basically all I need to test. Yeah, but they added copper recently to some of the salt. And what are you going to do? Yeah, you can't test. Yeah, for you it. can't test for it. Uh, here, here's a quick question. Hey, Mark Vanderwolf's in the house. Did uh, Sanja ever restart the softy tank after the tank failure? Not really. Only because. My stand on that tank is on the verge of uh -oh. falling apart. So I don't want to, I need to get a new stand for it. And until I can do that, I'm not putting any coils in there because 
You know, as soon as you do these it, MDF don't... stands, I don't care what these people say, what they coat them with, these MDF stands don't work well. Is it on the, uh, is it in the basement or is it on a, uh, oh, that's good. It's in the basement. You know, it's, it's definitely, you can see it crumbling. <laughs> yeah, Sanjay's taking all those tanks out of the upstairs. I mean, I, we, I used to walk yeah. into his house. There was a tank right in the entryway, a tank in his office. Now everything's downstairs. Yeah, uh, Sanjay, how old is that 500-gallon yeah. tank? It was seven yeah, hundred and six. And, and we, we talked so, about this. You uh, actually years. had the um, Aquarium Obsessed come and replace the front glass? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does... Are you are you worried at all in terms of that uh, tank? Um, you know, at some point down the line, busting a seam again, or I hope not, because if it busts a seam and I'm not around, <laughs> that'll be the end of my routine. Nah, you'd start another one. Yeah, okay, no, but happens when I'm gone. So, is there any thought gone. in the back of your head about like um, doing a complete restart? Any thought about that? No. <laughs> It's a lot, it is a lot of work. work. No. Partly because I look at this thing and I go, you know, there's an opportunity here to learn about old tanks, right? There's very few tanks that you see that have been around for 16 years and set up with the same rock and sand and everything else. So there's clearly an opportunity to learn about these things, right? So if I tear it up, that opportunity is gone. Well, you can keep that. Like you can keep that experiment going years. on and start something new. No. Well, that's what I, you know, that's what that seventy-five is going to. When it goes back up, it'll be my something new. Uh, but I need to get a good stand, and none of these, like the tanks, a Red Sea tank. They made these stands, and I'm going to get a replacement stand for it. But there's no wooden stand that they make for it. You know. It's all the same material. I'm like, I don't want to stand with this material anymore. You know? So it's kind of in limbo right now. Uh, Next. But I have a 500-gallon soft coral tank at Penn State. So I do have a 500-gallon soft go. coral tank. <laughs> <laughs> so next time I come over, Sanjay, I'm going to bring cinder blocks. And we're going to take that tank down and put it on the cinder block. So you'll have a stand <laughs> that will last, and then you can set up the soft coral tank. No one sees it but me anyhow. So, yeah, I mean, you may as well put the cinder blocks under it. <laughs> so, all right. <clears throat> this is a, uh, a question I thought long and hard about asking you guys, and uh, I think it's going to be helpful for folks out there. So both of you guys have, have had a long, distinguished career as uh, reef keepers, a lot of experience and what have you. But, you know, there's there's just so much information out there, right? There's, there's uh, social media, there's Instagram, there's flashy... Um, things left and right where where people are uh, potentially following I don't know little trends here and there and, and it's 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 a lot different than the older days in terms of you know right in in terms of reading books oh yeah and articles books. And what are books you guys have uh, as I talked about at the beginning penned a lot of um, very very useful and insightful articles and books but um, so I think Mentors in the hobby is a big thing. People that you can follow, right? In terms of mimicking somebody that's had a lot of success, and you guys have certainly had a lot of success. And and for newbies and new reef keepers to be able to kind of, um, you know, mimic what these folks are doing that have had great success with their tanks. So for each of you, if you could pick three people in the industry right now that folks should pay attention to, 
follow. Um, and it can't be, you know, Mike, you can't say Sanjay and Sanjay, you can't say Mike. I was saying Sanjay, because that's who I'd call. <laughs> if, if you could pick three, each of you guys, th three people that folks should really pay attention to, you know, in this hobby, who would they be? I don't, I, I don't know because I don't follow anybody per se. I look at people's tanks. I see nice things. Uh, and everybody has a, a different idea. Uh, like I said, when I was up at ARC and I talked to Randy and Devin, I found out about the Cipro treatment. And then when I went and saw Dan at TCK, I learned something. Everywhere I go, I learn something new rather than one person. There is no one perfect formula and there's no one perfect guru because if there was, we'd all be doing the exact same thing. It's every tank, you can give Sanjay and I the exact same corals, the exact same equipment, our tanks would look completely different. So listening to one or three people is kind of not gonna work because everybody does some everything slightly differently. But what I would say, if you find someone that you do trust and you see their tanks and you know they're good, just follow what they're doing. Don't be jumping around doing stuff like I do, which is I'm telling you from my own experience. <laughs> don't constantly be jumping around. Follow something that works and then stick with it. Don't follow the latest trend. Don't follow the latest fad. Because like, like we discussed earlier, it used to be much simpler. We had less information and we were just as, or if not more successful because we weren't constantly chasing numbers. We weren't constantly chasing a fad and life was much simpler than it was and than it is now. So that would be my suggestion. There, there, I don't follow anyone online per se, but I, I listen to people that have successful tanks as to what they're doing. Okay, what trace elements are you adding or what's your lighting schedule or you know what are you doing differently that makes you successful. And I may follow it or I may, because of my own nature, change it a little bit, which is part of the fun of this hobby is learning from people, but also tweaking it yourself. Sanjay, what do you think? I'm the same way. I mean, at this point, if I have specific questions about things, I know the right people to call yeah. and contact, right? And most likely they're friends of mine and they'll actually reply to me, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're blessed that yeah, way. There's I mean, lots there's of a friends lot of, that we trust. There's a lot of people who knowledge I would consider as being a vetted knowledge, right? And they're not going to give me bullshit, right? So they might even tell me they don't know, which is very, very likely they might not know. But there are sounding boards and, you know, we can exchange ideas and try to this try to figure out whether this idea makes sense or not before we try it, right? Mike likes to jump into things without trying. He thinks that the next best thing to grow corals is out there. I remember the days when he was putting human growth hormone in his aquarium. What? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was in the because in the Italians early 2000s, were there was a compound called Papone that the Italians were mixing up, which was a coral food that had, coral food that had human growth hormone in it. So I, I couldn't get human growth hormone because it's prohibitively expensive, but I could get other <laughs> growth hormone, which is very similar. And then I switched that over to amino acids, and that led to the amino acid addition to the tanks, which we also found a really good uh, food for uh, nasty bacteria. So I, I've greatly limited my addition of amino acids at this point since I've been battling uh, tissue necrosis. 
but I, I, I do try more things than Sanjay does. I'm more of an experimenter. Sanjay's like uh, my dad. He's a, a, a ludite in terms of changing things or trying something new. I'm someone that thinks, okay, let's try this. I'm always tinkering, but that's my background is in experimenting. So I always like to experiment a little bit. That's what keeps me excited. Okay, I found this works or this doesn't work. That's why my corals grow way better than Mike's. They grow much better. <laughs> it, it's, it's true. I, I don't Too much of the change is bad, right? I mean, I change things. I'm happy to change things if, if they make sense to me, right? But I'm not changing things for the sake of changing. No, and I have gotten better over the past two or three years where I'm not changing things every month or every two months. During COVID was bad. I was bored and I was changing things every month <laughs> and doing an experiment. Since COVID, I have basically not been changing things and not doing anything really differently. I, I've gotten much more stable and going back to old school where I'm not constantly trying to find the next best thing. And that has stabilized things other than just battling the stupid uh, bacteria. A lot of fads have come and gone through this hobby since I've been in the hobby, yeah. right? Um, and ultimately people have gone full 360 mm -hmm. on these things, right? And gone back to what a lot of us were saying a long time ago. You can't run a tank with zero nitrates and zero phosphates. It's ridiculous. You know? Yeah. If they don't have any, any nutrients, um, they're how people are dosing nitrates and dosing phosphates because it's come full circle. Right? So a lot of these things, I guess, you know, people jump on these bandwagons because they see that's that's the way somebody is at least doing it or at least showcasing that that's what they're doing, right? All these coral farms, you know, they push this whole idea of blue light, blue light, blue light, you know, fine, you know, that's, but do you really see what they're doing? They're running full spectrum light at least for three, four, five hours a day. The blue, the blue the makes them grow. look a lot better. It makes them yeah. look better, but it doesn't mean it makes them it grow doesn't better. make them grow better. Sandra yeah. used to grow so the best you... corals you've ever seen under Iwasaki 6500K metal halides. He used to grow humillus corals that were basically cinder blocks. He has to, we just have to go with a yeah. hammer and chisel to take them out of the tank. That's how thick they grew. Nobody even has humillus corals anymore now because nobody can break a little tiny frag and sell a quarter inch of humillus because it, it's not profitable to sell something like that. And if you see one, it's like, oh my God, what's that? It's a beautiful coral. You don't see them anymore. You see, all you see right now are tenuous and milliporas because they grow fast and they're colorful. But there's a zillion other corals that are just as nice and just as interesting that are, are much more difficult to see. When you walk around any of the shows, the things that amaze me the most, you don't see a whole lot of blue corals anymore. No. And the reason for this is blue light washes out the blue corals. So you don't see blue corals anymore. I love blue corals. I, uh, I'm with you on that. Um, all right. I'm just taking a look at the chat here, and, and I want to incorporate a couple of the, uh, the questions from, from the viewers. Um, Blue Reef, Keith, can you ask Mike what his thoughts about Andrew Sandler's tank was? So uh, I know, Mike, you visited that uh, beautiful 17,000-gallon uh, reef tank. Quick thoughts? Uh, unless you see it in person, the pictures, the videos, everything, do not do it justice. I mean, I wrote it up for the upcoming Coral Magazine, and it's the longest that has ever taken me to write an article in 40 years. Uh, it took eight rewrites, 
and it's the the longest tank article they've ever done in Coral Magazine, and it is as as nice as the seventeen thousand gallon tank is. There's six other tanks around the house that are just as interesting, at least to me, because they have unique corals, unique fish. I mean, you see that tank, and it's like being on a reef. And if you look at it from above, which I got to do with a, a, a box, and you look down on it, it looks like a reef in Fiji when you're on the boat driving over the reef. Wow. And these corals are just r roughly 18, 20 months in that tank. This is not a fully established tank yet. As those corals grow and fill in and become the size of a coffee table or a piano, which is what they're going to do, this tank's going to be even more spectacular. Right now, the corals are all this big, you know, a foot, two feet. But in 17,000 gallons, a two-foot coral looks like a frag in our tanks. <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing. But more amazing are the fish and how the fish interact. And when you watch them throw the food in, he feeds five times a day, roughly three quarters of a pound of food at a clip. And you watch this frenzy of fish going after it. It's just spectacular to see because these are not just yellow tangs. Oh, well, oh, there's 40 yellow tangs in there. There's Personatus angels. There's a uh, conspic uh, blue line hybrid. There's a, a hybrid colored uh, Desjardini tang that no one has ever seen before. Uh, there's a pair of... Uh, Crosshatch triggers that are spawning that attack anyone that goes into the tank. Uh, there's all these little wrasses. There's just so much. You could sit there for an hour and you just stare at one spot, and every 10 or 15 minutes, you'll find something new that you didn't see before. I mean, it's just, it literally takes your breath away. I mean, if you see it in person, you basically want to come home and tear your tank down and go, this isn't even work. It just, uh, yeah, makes you feel a little uh, just uh, overwhelmed in terms of what what you're uh, looking at in terms of the size. And I, I'm, you know, I know the equipment that he uses is like just I can't fathom. He's got uh, several large rooms full of equipment. Uh, he basically has my house full of equipment. <laughs> no, it, I mean, it, no. What it I love, is well done. What I love it's, about it's, Andrew is yeah, that Andrew is. Just so passionate about it. Yeah, Andrew's very passionate right. about that. I mean, Andrew could hang out with us. And about just as passionate. He's very passionate about what he does, and that shows. Right? I mean, I've, I've seen that tank from the day it was being built in his house. I remember the first time I ever I went to his house I, when he had the peppermint angels in his old house. And uh, I went to see those peppermint angels and stuff, and he drove me over to his new house that was being mm. built at that time. And showed me you know, where the tank was going in and all that stuff. And so I've been watching it over the years being built, and it's incredible. And it took him longer than he wanted to, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's, now it's an incredible tank, and I just love the passion he has. Yeah, I mean, he still loves know? it every day. He still enjoys it's it. It's not people go, oh, you know, he's got the money, he's a rich guy. But no, it doesn't matter. He still has the same passion that you and I have for yeah. the reef. and he's had this since the 90s. I mean, he he was one yeah. of the early buyers of retail him. Acropora before anyone was even keeping Acropora. He was yeah. experimenting with it like we were. I mean, I'm, I just really yeah, hope I my write-up does it justice. I mean, it, it, was, it took me a long time to try and capture everything about it, but it literally takes your breath away when you walk in and just see this. If you see the video right. and it, you think, oh, this is, nah, it, it's not even close. No, no, no. It's incredible when you see it. But then person. when you see it on three sides, because you can only see one side at a time. But when you stand on one of the sides, you look here and you look there, and it's a completely different 
viewpoint of everything that's going on in the tank. And then when you see everything that goes into running the tank, again, you want to just go home and go, I don't even want to do this hobby anymore because it's just. <laughs> I mean, it's the size of a public aquarium tank, right? It's bigger than most it's public aquarium of, reef tanks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So yeah, it's. I'll awesome. um, I'll have to try to um, pay him a visit one of these days because it's just uh, it, yeah, it 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 just sounds like it's the uh, the pinnacle of of a uh, of an aquarium that you can keep in a house, but um, okay. I saw a question earlier in the chat that um, is always a question that's in the back of my head, and it's a question that comes up a lot, I think, in the hobby, and this is about cyano. So uh, I wanted to get your guys' thoughts. Michael uh, Nunley asked this question. I have a 180-gallon mixed reef with a little bit of cyano nitrates or 8.5 8 and phosphates or 0.12. I treated the tank with ChemiClean and just treated the tank again with ChemiClean about 24 hours ago. I don't see a question in there, but um, let's let's talk about that in terms of um, you know how to handle cyano with chemicals. And you know I think there's been a lot of evidence out there that ChemiClean is an antibiotic, right? And it potentially is not only going to kill the the bad bacteria but the good bacteria. What do you what do you guys feel about using uh, ChemiClean to treat cyano? I I've used it. I when I, I use a lot of I dose bacteria now after I do anything just because I've become much more aware of trying to keep the the microbiome around the corals help 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 healthier. But before I do ChemiClean, if I just have a little spot of cyano, I tend to spray it with peroxide with a bulb baster, and nine times out of ten that usually takes care of it. And it usually occurs in a dead spot or where detritus is accumulating or something like that. So after I wipe it out with the uh, uh, peroxide, I try to increase the flow there and I try to make sure no detritus accumulates in that area. And a lot of times that's enough to take care of it. But if it isn't, then I will resort to ChemiClean. But right after I do the one or two doses of it, then I go back to adding bacteria to try and make up for what it has killed off. And I know of people now that do ChemiClean prophylactically once a month. I, I'm not a big advocate of that. I, I'm having worked with antibiotics for a lot of my adult life in what I did for my real job. There aren't any real perfect antibiotics for anything. So whenever you kill off something good, you're also or something bad, you're also going to kill off something good. So you want to make up for that by adding other things to the to the tank to make up for it. But like Sanjay said, in a lot of these bacteria that we're adding, we don't know if we're adding all good bacteria, good and bad, or you know, we have no idea. That's one of the next things we need to see. What's in your bacterial mix? And, you know, how do we know these are all good? And how do we know they're bad bacteria free? So, uh, Mike, if you had cyano pop up again, how would you uh, handle it? You, I thought I just answered. You mean Sanjay? Uh, well, no. If, uh, you said you've, oh, treated, you, you've yeah. used ChemiClean in the past. If you, um, if you had, knowing what you know now, let's say, if you had cyano again pop up, uh, in the future, would you still go with the ChemiClean or would you go with the uh, other methods? No, I'd still go with ChemiClean. That's the one I found that works the best, causes the least amount of grief and aggravation. And like I said, right after I dose it, then I start dosing Microbacter 7, Dr. Tim's, uh, Bacteria from uh, Fauna Marin, and uh, there's one other that I dose. I, I, don't, I don't think anyone has a perfect strains of bacteria in a bottle, so I add a variety of different bacteria just to, to make sure I'm covered. Sanjay, what do you think about uh, cyano and the use of chemical? 
I mean, yeah, I do the same. I, my, my approach is if it's got small patches of cyano, I don't worry about it. Cyano seems to come and go. And I've seen small patches will show up and I don't do anything and then it disappears. Right? Uh, once in a while, it goes haywire. You know, it'll just uh, be everywhere. When it gets to that point of being everywhere, that's when I would think about putting uh, chemiclean and, and killing it. But even. So I just wait until it gets really bad. And most of the time, it doesn't get. Yeah, it, 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 the little patches come and go. Something has to be really know? out and of whack for it to, to really take off. But when it does get bad, it gets really bad. Then I go to chemiclean and I go to a blackout. I, I'll go to two or three days of blackout. And that seems to get rid of it really fast. Mike, during the blackouts, have you uh, found that uh, your corals stress out and perhaps you uh, you lose a couple of corals or have you not had that experience? I mean, do they all lighten up a little bit? They all lighten up a little bit, but they bounce back two or three days later. They look like I haven't done a blackout. Like I said, you could, you could turn off your lights for three or four days. You can turn off your skimmer for three or four days. The only thing you can't turn off for three or four days is your flow. Mm. I mean, I, I'm a big advocate of having a lot of flow in the tank. I mean, that's... When I've when I've lost corals, it was due to mainly due to inadequate flow more than anything else. Um, a question from Born to Be Shooter Josh: Would lower than ideal pH be a possible cause for stunted coral growth? I dose and feed constantly, and just got a brand new light that is uh, as high as the uh, corals will tolerate, but still have stunted growth. Any thoughts on that? Is it as bulk reef supply showed, higher pH leads to higher growth rates. So if your pH is dropping down to 7, 6, 7, 7, even 7, 8, and isn't getting much over 8, then your growth will be stunted. If you get your pH where it stays over 8 for most of the day, typically you'll get faster growth. That's one of the reasons why I think Sanjay had such phenomenal growth. He was blasting that tank with so much light that the pH was relatively high. So the corals were, were growing very well in that, in that instance. Would you agree, Sanjay? Yeah, I mean, that's what, that's what the whole global climate change is showing people that excess CO2 is changing the pH levels in the ocean. You're getting acidification, you're right. getting slower growth rates. Right. That acidification is going to slow down your coral growth. In tanks, sometimes we can get away with lower pH because we can jack up the alkalinity to compensate. Right? Because I'll, so that helps raising alkalinity. A little above normal. We have that parameter to play with. I can't add alkalinity in the ocean that easily, um, but in the tank we can. So sometimes having higher alkalinity helps, even if your pH is tending towards slightly lower. Because adjusting pH is not easy, mm -hmm. right? It's a function of carbon dioxide. That's the only way you're going to change the pH. So when you add calcwasser, essentially. You know, it's reacting with the carbon dioxide in the water, and that's what's increasing your pH. Yeah, in the summertime when it's really hot, yeah. or in the wintertime when it's really cold, a lot of people have pH issues because the pH in the room is really high. Mm -hmm. I think I talked to this about this before. Yeah. I have a CO2 monitor. If it's, it's just uh, my wife and I and the dogs in the house and the windows are closed, the, the, P, the CO2 down there will be around 600, 620. That's not an issue. We have a party and have eight people here. The uh, CO2 level downstairs in a closed room will get to be 1,200, 1,400. And I can watch the pH drop way down. And I can see that the corals aren't quite as happy for a couple of days after that. So, I mean, I open the windows almost every night 
to blow out the CO2 in the room and blow fresh air into the room to keep the CO2 levels down. So uh, you just referred to uh, Mike PH, um, pH uh, swings. What about uh, alkalinity swings? I had a guest on a few weeks ago, Dong Zhou, who is a, um, is a scientist. He's been in the reef keeping hobby for a very long time, and he pointed to some um, scientific literature that, that basically was, was showing that alkalinity swings are not really going to be bad in terms of coral growth and health. Uh, what are you guys' thoughts about that? Are, um, have you experienced in the past bad things happening with the corals when you've had alk swings or um, yeah. not so much so? I mean, when we're talking about alk swings, we're not, I'm not talking about going from like uh, 8 to uh, 12 or something. I'm talking about, uh, you know, should we be stressing out about an alk swing of like 8.5 to 10, you know, a point to a point and a half? No, I, I've, I've had problems when I've gone from like 8 to like 11, something like that. And then stupidly try to bring it down fast, which is I've learned the hard way. If you get that bump up in alkalinity, just let it gradually come down. Don't try to bring it down real fast. If you slow it down, I don't have issues. When I've tried to bring it down fast after having that bump up for whatever reason, that's when I've had issues. Yeah, same thing with me. I mean, I don't worry about alkalinity swing of one or two. DKH doesn't bother anything. Uh, um, now you go from ten to six. Okay, I can see that happening. That's stressing. Are you out, using a? Um, I I I usually lose about two DKH per day if I turn off all my alkalinity addition to the tank. You know, but even then, it if I let it go, it, it doesn't keep dropping to like two every day. Right, it's slow. It flattens out around six, yeah. somewhere there, you know. Um, but yeah, it definitely, especially when I was running it high, I've run my tank all the way up to fourteen dkh in the past. Yeah. But it was consistent. And then you, if you drop from fourteen to ten, I mean that's a big difference. Yeah, the, the main thing is consistency rather than just this quick spike. You drop from ten to eight, and eh, you know, don't see much of a difference. Yeah, the same thing for me. You know, I think um, when I see alkalinity, you know, creeping down, I think that's always a good thing because that tells me that the corals are consuming the alkalinity and, and that's like a sign of a healthy tank. I guess when, when it kind of goes the other way, that always gets a little concerning to me when it starts to creep up a little bit because, uh, you know, they're, they're not uh, consuming as much, I would assume, if your uh, alkalinity is going up. Well, that's your addition too, right? I mean, you're adding right. alkalinity. So maybe there's a fluctuation there that's causing right. It to if you're go using um, calcium reactor or what have you, and hey, you're not that consistent with it. Are both you guys. Right? Um, so again, it goes back to the fact that you know, you know, you can measure it every every hour if you wanted to, you know, and stress about it. <laughs> right. I mean, I will say though, the past day you never bothered with. No, right? I, I will say that the most consistently balanced alkalinity tank I've ever seen is Julian's tank where he doses like every five minutes or something, and his coral growth is phenomenal in his tank. I mean, so he is the uh, epitome of consistency. Do we need alkalinity monitors to be monitoring our alkalinity five times a day? I do mine, Not in my yeah, I do mine four times a day, and that's fine. Every six hours is fine. I mean, as long as you're doing it at the same time, it gives you a good idea. If you're doing it at one o'clock and then it's three o'clock, no. But at the same time, every day you see, you know, it goes down during the day, it goes up at night, and you're dosing the same consistent way. I mean, I, I, I have dosers to dose, keep my uh, alkalinity the same, 
And the amount they dose at night compared to during the day is like 10% of what they dose during the day. So you're using two part? Yeah, three part. Three part. Um, Sandra, you're a calcium reactor? I'm using Are you worried about reactor. the uh, CO2 shortage? No. I mean, my, because of the calcium reactor, my CO2, actually, my pH runs a little on the low side. I, I'm talking about the, um, so I, I, I went out. The, 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 well, there's um, apparently in the Northeast, there's a shortage of carbon dioxide out there. I went out to uh, yesterday to go fill my um, CO2 canister, 20 pound canister. And I was told that there was a contamination that um, impacted mm -hmm. a whole bunch of states in the area and that uh, there will be no CO2 available until October. I was like, yikes. Uh, that can be problematic. Do, yeah. do you guys have CO2 around you? Maybe I'll come uh, road trip and uh, pick up some CO2. <laughs> I always have like, that's three CO2 tanks. I had an extra one that I used, you know, so I got two systems. I got calcium reactors in both systems. So I had an extra CO2 tank and, and one tank ran out. So I swapped it out and uh, I got the other tank going, which seems to have enough CO2 in it for a while. But I always like to, you know, have that spare one filled up. Not this time. Yeah, thank you. Maybe I'll have to go and check. I've got two empty ones sitting around right now. Maybe I should get them filled. Yeah, you should get a filter while you can. Um, you did, yeah, you should check because this seemed to be a um, a very broad-reaching problem. I don't know mm -hmm. if it's the Northeast or if it's um, you know. I'm I'm apparently, apparently there was an article or uh, um, a story about it on CNN. Mm -hmm. um, one, add one more thing to the supply chain issue. Yeah. <laughs> CO2. We have excess CO2 in the air, but we can't get it for our We time. can't get it out of there. <laughs> yeah, we can't. Now, they won't be buying CO2 absorbers from the air, and we'll be yeah. saving the planet by yeah. taking care of our tanks. Yeah. Um, all right, guys. I don't want to. Sanjay. There's a project to work on. you got to develop CO2 removal for supplying our, our reef tanks. Yeah, harness the CO2 in the air. Yeah. Well, isn't that what your corals are doing? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Harvesting a lot of CO2. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to keep you guys too much longer. But um, just a couple of uh, a couple of broad questions for you. In in terms of you know we've been talking a lot about uh, trends and how things have changed over the years. Do you guys see any future trends out there that um, um, you know are are positive, favorable things for the uh, for the yeah. industry and the hobby? I, I see the positive t positivity mainly coming from people like Jamie Craig's doing spawning and providing the information so that we can start spawning stuff in our tanks rather than frying things, having 10,000 planula and baby corals would be pretty cool. And also the work he's doing with hybridizing stuff to get, because what's funny is I'll, I'll never forget this. I was sitting and drinking with Alf Nilsson and uh, Charlie Verone at a, a Magna probably 20, 25 years ago. And we were having a pretty good time. And Charlie Verone looked at me and he goes, I don't understand you Americans. You're so obsessed with what this type of coral is. He said, there's probably realistically only six different kinds of Acropora. He said, but they hybridize, they change from because of light, they change because of flow. You guys all think these are different. They may just be hybrids. I said, if he would see what we do now with named corals and how everything is, he's probably crying going, you people are insane. So <laughs> I, I, I see the positivity of what Jamie's doing and hybridizing things and eventually saying, you know what, this coral that we thought was this is actually a hybrid of this and this. I think that's going to prove that Charlie Verone was right 25 years ago. 
So I think this whole spawning thing is exciting. And being able to spawn them in aquariums is exciting. Not everybody's going to do it, you know, but there'll be some that'll do it to a level where it'll be very interesting. Um, people are doing it with the fish, you know, people are spawning more and more fish now. So those are some healthy trends, right? I mean, we're no longer need to go get captive clownfish anymore, yeah. right? There's enough. No. And I, I think with fish, once the price gets close between bread and wild, wild will become obsolete. But until then, you know, the, the difference in price is so prohibitive in a lot of instances, it keeps people from buying them, even though we probably should, because eventually they're going to want to shut it down. But figuring out how to spawn all the different things and figuring out how to market and get people to want more than Tancray's clownfish. Because I mean, that that's where the future is is breeding out you know a thousand yellow tangs for the market rather than you know doing twenty. So it's going to become an expansion of number rather than variety to provide enough for everybody. Because the thing that has amazed me the most is I, I've watched this hobby expand over the past forty years is how many people are in it now compared with how many were there when we started. I mean, when I I, I talk to people and Sanjay talks to people all over the world. When we started this, there were like two guys in every country doing this. <laughs> now there's, you know, half a million everywhere. It's, it's kind of mind boggling. And if you post something, the number of people that respond and ask you questions and stuff, I mean, there weren't that many people in the hobby. <laughs> now we get questions from those people. So it's, it's, it's good that there's so many people involved. It's exciting that there's so many people involved. But in terms of bad, the, the thing I'm most concerned about is the finances of being in this hobby mm. and with a potential recession coming, what that's going to do to the hobby. Because the ha hobby has had basically free reign for the past 10 years when people had a lot of money. And if that money suddenly dries up and they have to decide between buying gas and food or corals, uh, nine times out of 10, they're probably, well, maybe not. I know I would probably still buy corals. <laughs> but the hobby is nine times out of 10, the coral would win. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> uh, that's what I'm thinking to myself. Yeah, okay. I don't really need bread or milk today. <laughs> the corals. But realistically, there, there will be a lot more divorces if that's the case. So we, 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 we can't, my wife's coughing over there going, <laughs> so we, that, that, that is my concern for the future is the, the cost of things needs to come down not substantially, but enough so that it, it stays relatively flat if things get bad. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, the COVID thing has really changed a lot of things, right? Shipping corals became a lot more, or fish, became a lot more expensive. Right? Yeah. All of a sudden, freight prices quadrupled, went sky high, right? People tell me that a container used to cost $4,000 to ship. Now it's costing $20,000 to ship, right? So when you're dealing with that level of magnitude, the prices of these things have gone up quite a bit, right? I mean, I have access and I look at some of the wholesale pricing on some of these things and I go, geez, these wholesale pricing these days is way more than what I used to pay retail. Yeah, for a lot of things. Right, for a lot of things. So the equation has changed and, you know, you know, with prices, you know, they, they might come down, but they never come down to what they used to be. Yeah, the, the shipping thing is concerning to me because um, just the gas prices and, and the, um, the, the problem in terms of just uh, 
staffing and 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 what have you it's um it's been tough man i mean in terms of just what the cost of freight these days is like mind-boggling compared to what it was uh you know just uh, a a couple of years ago before covid hit um so that that is concerning you know i think a lot of people also kind of overlook the fact that there are a lot of um very very affordable things in the hobby that you can um you know pick up in terms of corals and maybe not so much if, maybe well, not yeah. so much in fish but at least in uh, in corals you could really find some gems out there for um some... oh yeah if people are you know not hung up about these named corals that really don't look that nice yeah. to begin with but they've been hyped up if they if they, if they you know there's lots of good reasonable corals that you can get yeah i mean Right. I, 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 I've, I've but people seem to concentrate that. around these big names and so on and so forth. And, you know, I don't think you should, the new hobby should get concerned with any of that stuff. Trading, no, you swapping. Can right? nice, Learn, you can still have a nice... Learn to keep the corals alive first. Or, you know? I mean, grow a big colony of something and look at it from across the room versus looking at a frag of something that costs 10 times as much. <laughs> I'll take the big coral I can see from across the room. Look at a big colony of red planet, what that looks like in your tank versus a frag of, you know, rainbow, whatever. I'll take the big giant colony of red planet anytime. Yeah, no, it's a it's a gorgeous coral. And uh, yeah, I always feel like the corals that uh, catch your eye across the room in terms of the color. I mean, a Milka Stylo, a red planet, um, an Oregon blue tort, if you don't run blue lights, are uh, stunning. And they're not yeah. going to cost you yeah. an arm and a leg. Yeah, but that's my fear, that a lot of these corals that are, you know, were staple in the hobby that nobody cares about now will actually disappear from the hobby. And they actually have disappeared. I've been trying to find a lot of the right. older corals. Because you can't find these old corals because they're cheap, nobody wants them, nobody then wants to propagate them because it's not worth propagating. And then they disappear from the hobby. Um, all right, my last question to you guys, um, both you guys. Mike, you just mentioned this. Uh, what corals would you, are you looking for? What, what What's on your uh, list there? My list. I'm looking for a nice Palmer's blue millipora. I'm growing. I'm, I'm growing for, one of those out. Okay, I'm looking for a purple millipora. Those those used to be spectacular too. Uh, what else am I looking for? Uh, not really much else. I have pretty much everything else I want. I mean, it's sad to say that, but uh, between my tank and the frag tanks and my friends' tanks. There's, there's not. I mean, I'm looking for blue corals. I'm still looking for an old blue hoaxamai. Mm. I'm looking for a blue uh, albrahensis. Uh, I'm looking for a blue geminifera. That's the one coral that, when Fiji used to bring in corals, the geminiferas were the most spectacular yeah. corals, and they were very difficult to keep. I've not seen a geminifera probably in ten years at least. I mean, those are the things I want. The stuff that nobody grows anymore. Because those, to me, when you sit in my, when I sit in my chair downstairs and I can see them from five feet away, and they're still blindingly colorful. Because I'll, I'll be honest, I mean, I have a lot of the name Tenuous and and other odd millies, and they're really nice if I'm sitting right here and looking at it. <laughs> but when I'm sitting in my chair and looking into the a tank that's four feet deep, I don't see them in the back of the tank. I don't see these colors, you know, unless I'm above the tank with a box which isn't how I like to look at my tank. I like to sit in a chair, relax, see the fish and see the corals. I mean, I, I like to be like Andrew's tank on a smaller scale. I mean, you just sit back and you can enjoy the symphony that's going on in front of you. You don't like wearing the uh, orange glasses? I, I have probably 30 pair of them. I can't <laughs> tell you the last time I put one on. <laughs> 
Sanjay, anything you're looking for at, th at this point? Do you have any room? At this point, all I'm looking for are calls that will not yeah. get diseased. <laughs> in my time. So right now, I'm I'm just waiting yeah. to see what happens before I put anything else in. Fair it. enough. Uh, I'm just letting it go, you know. We'll yeah. Wait and see. I'm in now, rush. Sounds like a good plan. All right, guys. Any uh, any final thoughts before we wrap it up? Well, hopefully, we'll see everyone that's watching this at Magna. I mean, come up and say hello. I always like chatting with everybody that's out there making new friends so uh sanjay and i'll be hanging out a lot together there so uh if you can yeah, figure yeah. out which one of I'm, us is which you know we'll we'll be grateful for that i'm slightly different from mike i'm like just don't come and say hello unless you walk up with a glass of beer <laughs> i uh i, I definitely yeah, this will be a real fun fact that we'll be asleep i definitely owe you guys a few drinks we'll take you up on yeah, that. yeah no for sure all right. Well, listen, guys, thank you so much for uh, for uh, joining me together. This was an awesome uh, chat and hopefully everybody found it very um, insightful and, and, and useful. Uh, thank you both again. And I also want to thank the uh, sponsors, both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine for sponsoring the live stream and all you folks out there tuning in. And um, also want to thank Paul, the moderator. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is that all episodes of Wrap on the Reef Bum are available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon. My next Wrapping with Reef Bum live stream will be on Thursday, August 25th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with hobbyist Peter Din, also known as Bay Area Reef. He is a whiz with video and Instagram, so we're going to kind of be digging into some photography and videography tips with Peter. Sanjay, we should have talked about that with you. You're pretty uh, pretty good with the old camera lens yourself yes and funny doing water drops that those are pretty crazy um i also want to mention i'm gonna have a live coral sale on saturday september 3rd at 3 p.m eastern standard time right here on youtube uh you can learn more about that on reefbum.com if you want to check out the full upcoming schedule of guests for wrapping with reefbum you can check out reefbum.com as well under the youtube section so until next time be safe be well and we will see you next time adios